I've handed out a handout that deals with the question of the name Jehovah. This was brought up last time we met. And the question is, what is the difference between Jehovah and Yahweh? Yahweh is God's personal name in Hebrew. Where did it come from, and why do we remember the term Jehovah, and even sometimes still use it and hear it sung in certain hymns? So what I've done is I've laid out for you, in Hebrew and in English, the name Yahweh. It's at the very top there. You see, uh, Hebrew is written from right to left, and it is a consonantal language. It's made up of consonants only. That little doohickey on the far right, upper right-hand corner, is a, is a Y. And then you have an H, and then you have a Vav, a V, and then you have another, another H. And those are the consonants for Yahweh. All right? The V is soft, therefore it comes out like a W. Well, and then you see that little T underneath the Y? That little T right there underneath the Y? That is called a vowel point because. Hebrew originally had no vowels, it caused lots of people trouble. And so a, a group of folk called the Masoretes decided to invent vowels <coughs> for the language. They invented little points that they would add around the consonants. And so this little T is an A, a long A. And that little three dots kind of look like a part of a bowling pin setup. <laughs> that is a E. Sound, a double E. And it if you then sound it out, it's Yah with the H at the end, Yahweh, or Yahweh, depending upon your preference of pronunciation. Usually pronounced Yahweh. Again, it's from right to left. Yahweh. Well, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Ten Commandments, it says something about using the Lord's name in vain. And that has generally been, been interpreted by Jews as meaning you do not say the Lord's name at all unless you are the high priest at a specific important moment in the liturgy in the Holy of Holies. Then you can say Yahweh under your breath. And if God doesn't strike you dead, you did it right. All right? You didn't use the name in vain. They were terrified of using the name Yahweh. So to teach it, but unfortunately, the Bible is riddled with it. It's throughout the Hebrew Bible. The name of God can be found throughout the Hebrew Bible. So to teach people who are reading the scriptures not to say Yahweh when they see it written there, the Masoretes put around the consonants for Yahweh, the consonants for the word Adonai which is the word in Hebrew for Lord. All right? You see Adonai there in Hebrew script. Again, it's written from right to left. That big X type thing is called an Aleph. It actually has no sound of its own. It's a, it's a vowel placeholder in Hebrew. That big X is an Aleph. And then you have a Dalet or a D. And then a Nun or an M and then a final Y. And then you add to that 
the vowel points. A short A, which is that little line and the two dots underneath, and O, which is that dot above the D, and then a long A underneath the noon to make that Y uh, strong, or to make it possible actually to say it. You have to have a vowel there to be able to say it. And it's pronounced Adonai. Adonai. You notice here the difference between the, in the A, one is an A and the other is an A. So here is the word Adonai, which means Lord. And here is the word Yahweh, which means Yahweh. And it's God's personal name. This is a title. Lord is a title. Yahweh is a name. It's off, Yahweh is often paired with Elohim, which means God. All right. So in the Hebrew Bible, you'll often see Yahweh Elohim, and, and um, when you see that, anytime you see Yahweh in Hebrew, they teach you in Hebrew class not to pronounce it. Instead, to pronounce only the vowel points and the consonants that ought to go with the vowel points for Adonai. What the Masoretes did was they took these vowel points and they added them, taking out the ones for Yahweh and added them to Yahweh. All right. So that's what you see down after the little paragraph explaining why they weren't supposed to pronounce Yahweh. They took the consonants from Yahweh. And they took the vowels from Adonai. That shortened that beginning A quite a bit, even more, when they did that. And they added them to the consonants for Yahweh. And you see that right here in the third spot. The consonants for Yahweh, they took the vowels from Adonai, they put them to the consonants for Yahweh, and due to grammatical constructions, a couple of those vowels shifted slightly. And it produced something that the Hebrew language does not have. And it's the name Yehovah, which in German <laughs> is Jehovah. When a Hebrew person reads the Hebrew Bible and they see those vowels for Adonai around the consonants for Yahweh, they know not to say Yahweh. They say Adonai. When I'm reading the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew and I read across the name Yahweh, I do not say out loud Yahweh. I pronounce Adonai by convention. And the vowel points are there to tell me it's Adonai. There's only a couple of places where that's not the case in the Hebrew Bible. One of those is where Yahweh says, I am that I am. That is my name in Exodus. That's one of the few places where it's pointed as it ought to be in Hebrew. All right? Because that's what the name by the way Yahweh means. It means I am. I exist. And so God's name is the to be verb <laughs> in in a, in a way. So, um, this is where the name Jehovah came from. It's an artificial name. Based in it, and it came into an existence in German and in English based upon a misunderstanding of Hebrew. And as we learned what Hebrew meant and why the Jews did what they did the way they did it, and we bothered actually talking to some Jews, 
Germans didn't really have much of an interest in doing that. We actually talked to some of the Jews and they found out why they did it the way they did it. We discovered that God's actual name is not Jehovah. It's Yahweh. Now that is very, can be very confusing because it requires grasping some elements of another language that are not easy. Are there questions about it? Say that again. You said Yahweh. Yahweh is God's personal. I'll, I'll just walk through it again very slowly. Yahweh is God's personal name. Adonai is a title that Yahweh has. It means Lord. Lord Yahweh is often found together at times too. So you'll see sometimes Adonai Yahweh written down. And when a Hebrew sees that, they don't say Adonai Yahweh. They say Adonai Adonai. And if Elohim follows it, then the word God follows it. You know, Lord, Yahweh, God, as a full title for the deity, they will say Adonai, Adonai Elohim. Okay, so the name of God, the personal name of God is Yahweh. To teach people not to say that name when they would read the Bible, to not pronounce it out loud as they would read the Bible, they took the vowel points off of the consonants and they put the vowel points from Adonai onto it as a hint to the reader. Dear reader, as you are reading this, you will if you were to sound out these consonants and these vowels, you will get gibberish. That gibberish is an indicator to you, because Yehovah means nothing, that, that, that gibberish is an indicator to you that you're not supposed to pronounce the consonants. Instead pronounce the consonants that should go with these vowels. And those consonants would be the consonants for Adonai. So when you see Yahweh, you don't say Yahweh, you say Adonai. When you see Yahweh, you don't say Yahweh, you say Lord. Now, in your King James and NRSV and NIV, frequently you will see the following in translation into English. You will see this and you will see that. Lord and Lord. Lord in lowercase and Lord in uppercase. When you're seeing Lord in lowercase in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament in the translation into English, it's translating Adonai. The word Lord. But when you see Lord in all capitals, it's translating Yahweh. The same convention is in place in the English translation. If you see it in all caps, it's translating the word Yahweh. So you'll often see this. L-O-R-D, all caps, God. Lord God translates the Hebrew phrase pronouncing the word Yahweh Elohim. They would never pronounce that Yahweh. They would always say Adonai. And this, all caps, is the English way of communicating that idea. The New Jerusalem Bible doesn't use the all caps Lord. It uses Yahweh. They go with the actual translation. 
that gives Jews the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> they hate it when they see that. All caps L-O-R-D is how an English translation of the Hebrew Bible renders Yahweh. So when you're reading the Old Testament, especially, and you come across LORD in all caps, even if the O-R-D is a little smaller, all caps, it means Yahweh. And the reason they do that is to follow the convention of the Jews of not pronouncing the name, but instead replacing it with the title Lord in Hebrew Adonai. And Jehovah comes about because German readers of the Hebrew Bible two and three hundred years ago did not know this. And when they saw the vowel points for Adonai connected to the consonants for Yahweh, they pronounced them out loud like they should be pronounced, and it comes out Yehovah or Jehovah. And that is a name that never existed and a deity that never existed. <laughs> okay? It's the name Yahweh. I'm frequently asked the question, why do I use the title or the name, the personal name of the deity Yahweh? That's why. That's God's personal name. And we find it in Exodus when, when Moses asks, who am I to say who sent me? And, and, and God responds, I am that I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. That is actually an English translation. And, it's, and by the way, in your Exodus, it'll have it in English in all caps. I am as an indicator that this is actually the personal name of the deity. Because it is. It is the personal name of the deity. Because that's what it means. I exist. Actually, even more fully, it means I am known, I will be known, I shall be known, I exist, I be and cannot not be. I exist by the very nature of existence itself. I am the fundamental ground of all existence. I am the one thing that has to exist because everything else depends upon my existence. It is, the, it is an ultimate philosophical statement. The best visual, I've used this already in a sermon here, the best visual illustration for the meaning of the name Yahweh I know of is to take a, a water hose, attach it to the faucet, turn the water on, let the water start flowing, take it about midway and pinch it. That pressure of the water trying to get through your hand, that pressure trying to get out and, be, and spray, that's the essence of Yahweh. That's the essence of the meaning of the word. It means you cannot hold me in and hide me and repress me. I will be known. That force to come through is the essence of the meaning of the name. And it's because it is the one who is and cannot be denied. It's a highly philosophical name for a deity. Which has, and, and, and to be found in the very earliest layers of this religion's theology is just amazing. It's one of those reasons why people, when they look at the Hebrew religion, from, especially from its earlier formation stages, are stunned at the highly philosophical character of it. And that's one of the ways in which it is. God's personal name means the one who is. And by very virtue of that existence, cannot not be, and upon which everything, including you, exists. And it is Yahweh. Because that is the Hebrew verb for 
to be. Okay. All right. Any questions on that? <laughs> a little four-way into Hebrew for a bit. Hebrew is not my strongest language. Um, I find it fascinating. It looks like Klingon to me. Uh, it's covered all these dots and doohickeys, and it kind of sounds like it at times. But it's, um, it's a beautiful, poetic language. It has a very highly limited vocabulary with extraordinary nuances. One word can mean multiple different things given their context. And you change one vowel point, you change the entire meaning of the word. I mean, it really is a, an amazing language. All right, questions before we move into chapter six? All right, chapter six, Luke, chapter six, verse one. One Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked some heads of grain, rubbed them in their hands, and ate them. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, Have you not read what David did when he, was, when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and took and ate the bread of the presence, that's the showbread, which it is not lawful for any but the priests of, to eat, and gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Wow. This is a continuation. Remember, there were no chapters or verses in, in the, the, the Gospel of Luke or in any of the autographs. So here we have a continuation of some of these encounters between Jesus and Pharisees or, or the leaders of the people that we saw in the prior chapter where they whined and complained about Jesus, um, uh, first of all, inviting a, a nasty, stinking, rotten IRS agent to come follow him, Levi, and, and then going and eating with him. And they were stunned and shocked about that. And they asked about that. Why, why are you doing this? In chapter 5, verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Blah. Jesus answered them. I mean, they complained this to his disciples, but Jesus replies, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this is a continuation of that. And here we have yet another little vignette type story, little account, where Jesus, is, they're, they're, they're go traveling. First of all, it's on a Sabbath day. All right. You shouldn't be traveling very far on a Sabbath day, certainly not through a grain field where you might be tempted to harvest. And what's wrong with harvest? What, 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 what was unlawful about what they did? It was, work. it was work. You're not supposed to work on Sabbath day, period. You're just not supposed to do it. You don't work. You don't cook. You can eat food that's been cooked, but you can't cook it. If you break a leg, you can bind it, but you can't set it. I know, that's awful, isn't it? What about the ox? 
Can't you get it out of the ditch? <laughs> yeah, because that's necessary for life. Well, I, uh, but food is too. But you can you know, eat the food. You're getting the tractor out so you can plow the field. You, <laughs> you can eat, but you can't pick. Okay. That's what they did. They took the head of the grain off. They plucked. they plucked it. That's work. When you go to Israel today, they have elevators that run continuously on the Sabbath day. They go and they stop on every floor. And so you don't have to push a button. Isn't that wild? They have a setting on them. They throw the setting and the, the control panel deactivates and it just simply runs continuously. It's not considered work to stop the doors from closing by putting your body in between it, but it would be to hit the button to tell the door not to close or to open. So, I mean, they'll be very rude about it. So anyway, but, but unless they get a Gentile in the elevator, then they'll let us push the buttons. <laughs> they will do that. But no, they'll usually turn a key to deactivate the panel and then the elevator just goes to every floor continuously all day long because to push the button would be work to push the button would be work you leave your light on because to throw the switch would be work isn't that wild but that is how they interpret it and here they just reach out and they pluck the head of grain and they rub it in their hands. So they didn't only, they didn't only harvest, they processed, they processed it. it. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they did the cotton ginning. They, they worked. They did double work. They, they plucked it and they processed it. That was the problem. That was what they did that violated the Sabbath. And the Pharisee said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that da what David did when his companions were hungry? He went into the Holy of Holies and took the showbread, the bread of presence, the Old Testament prefiguring of the Eucharist, at which no one else was supposed to eat but the priest, and they ate it because they were hungry. And then he concludes with an amazing statement. The Son of Man, and that's a, that's a specific messianic phrase, not just to any old Son of Man, but the Son of Man, not a Son of Man, the Son of Man, <clears throat> is Lord of the Sabbath. It doesn't rule him. He rules it. Whew. The Sabbath law, there's very few laws more important in the Hebrew frame of reference than the Sabbath regulations. So much of their life orbited around interpreting those regulations and applying those regulations. <coughs> the Sabbath ones and those that devolve from them. And <coughs> Jesus says, sorry, the, the Sabbath is not Lord over me. I am Lord over it. Which is a huge statement. It's huge. It's the equivalent of saying, I'm not trying to be political here, it's the equivalent of saying, the Constitution isn't my Lord, 
I'm Lord of the Constitution. Wow. On another Sabbath, notice happening on Sabbaths. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would cure on the Sabbath, so that they might find an accusation against him. Curing on the Sabbath is, of course, a no-no. Isn't that amazing? Curing would be an issue. He make, working a miracle, they would have a problem with it if it happened on the Sabbath. Even though he knew what they were thinking, notice what they were thinking, he knew it. <laughs> wow. He said to the man who had the withered hand, come and, come and stand here. He got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at all of them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. He did so, and the hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. He had the unmitigated gall to heal on the Sabbath day. So of course they're going to be mad at him. It's violating their law. And one of the most fundamental laws they've got working on the Sabbath. Even though it was to do good, even though it was to save life, to heal someone, to be compassionate, they were angry. All he's doing is exercising what he said in the previous verse up there in verse 5. He's proving he's Lord of the Sabbath by healing the man with the withered hand. Jesus stands, oh, first of all, the Sabbath is good, all right? But when it becomes our Lord rather than we being its Lord, we got the problem. When it keeps you from doing what you should do, when it keeps you from doing good, when it keeps you from being righteous, when it keeps you from doing God's will, it no longer rules. It should be ruled over. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here in two excellent examples. The rules are important. Yeah. The, yeah, the Sabbath is one of the principal rules, it's in, and it's important. But the question would become, and it comes later on, what is the principal commandment? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Sabbath law, the Sabbath regulation, applies to both. It enables one to love the Lord and to love the neighbor as self. It allows, it enables one to love self. It has, it is therefore serving the first and the second of those two powerful commandments as Jesus interpreted it. But when it stops one from loving the Lord by healing, when it stops one from loving the neighbor by healing, is it serving the law? No, it's not. It's conflicting with it. And that's what Jesus is articulating here. That's what Jesus is showing. If you are in love with the law, 
like the Pharisees are. You're going to violate it in order to keep it rather than keeping it even if you violate it. There's a difference. That's what Jesus is saying. They are violating it by not allowing healing. Even though he is technically violating it by healing. Why? Because what is the fundamental element here? And it, as we will see, it's loving God and loving the neighbor. <clears throat> now during, verse 12, Now during those days he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose twelve of them, whom he also named apostles. That's interesting. So of the disciples that he had been calling, he now chooses. He doesn't just call the twelve. He then specifically selects from among them twelve to be apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew. Now that's interesting because he has already been called Peter, but that's pretty common. Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew. Interesting, that's where Matthew's name shows up. Of course, his name was Levi earlier. And Matthew and Thomas and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas, that's interesting, to Judah, to, to Judah, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who would become a traitor. So here we have the list now according to Luke. Matthew is unique in the way in which that collection is listed. The idea of the intentionality of from among a larger body he chooses 12. Instead of calling his disciples in first come first serve, which seems to be kind of how it is in Matthew and implied in Mark, in Luke he specifically identifies them and calls them apostles. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And in all the crowd were trying and all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. This is a rather amazing scene here. Here he's trying to preach and they're trying to touch him. I don't know about you, but that would be kind of problematic for me <laughs> to, to preach and that's kind of a setting. And now begins what we have in parallel over in Matthew's Gospel we, we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in Luke's Gospel it is distributed significantly across a rather wide range there's a whole segment of it here in chapter 6 dealing with uh, an introduction and the Beatitudes and retaliation, loving enemies, the golden rule, judging and judging a brother, trees and fruit, Lord, Lord, two builders, and then it skips quite a few chapters. 
And we get the Our Father, Ask, Seek, Knock, The Lamp, The Sound Eye, Anxiety, Treasures, Murder and Disputes. Get those in, that's chapter 11 and chapter 12. In chapter 13, you got the two ways of self-deception. In chapter 14, you have the parable of the salt. In chapter 16, you have God and mammon, the law, and divorce. That's in Luke. Matthew groups them all together tightly in chapters 5, 6, and 7. All together. Compiled together. All right. So we're going to look at how Luke does it. Verse 20. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Let's just take a sampling of the parallel from Matthew to see differences in structure or differences in word choice. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3, same, the exact same beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the difference there. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. As opposed to blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now I have a question for you. Which did Jesus say? Huh? Luke. Luke. They added the in spirit. You think that the in spirit and heaven are uh, interpretations <coughs> added by the author of Matthew? Thoughts? Why do you suppose they made that difference? Why would the author of Matthew add in spirit? Well, it speaks to two different groups. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. How do? You, how would you? I mean, if you just look at Luke, blessed are you who are poor. That doesn't seem to imply anything other than socioeconomic poverty. For yours is the kingdom of God is an extraordinarily juxtaposition against which it is placed. The poor don't have the kingdom of God. They never have had the kingdom of God. They have no place in the kingdom of God. Or if they do, they're at the very bottom rung in the kingdom of God. They're the servants in the kingdom of God, not part of it. But he says, yours is the king. And not will be. It's not future tense. It's present. Yours is the kingdom of God. So in Luke, it's stark. It's straightforward. It's quite limited. It's simple or simpler. It's still, it's a still an amazing statement, but it's simpler than Matthew, where it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now notice, Luke, it's, it's addressed to them. Blessed are you who are poor. Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not as direct, even. It's more generalized. And it's poor in spirit. Now that could have lots of connotations or meanings. I could be wealthy. You could be wealthy and poor in spirit, or, or you could be physically, socioeconomically poor and poor in spirit. 
It has a greater application, doesn't it? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's pr present tense, but we don't know anything about the kingdom of heaven as being here. Whereas the Jews did view the kingdom of God as being materially present or about to be there on earth. Interesting. So Matthew's projecting it to heaven and generalizing it for a larger group of people. <coughs> Which is why most people, most scholarship says that Luke is the more original reading. Matthew's interpretive of it. Therefore, it's secondary. Luke doesn't interpret it, he simply states it. And that makes it more original. That doesn't necessarily mean that at other places at other times Jesus might not have expounded upon what that meaning might be. But, but here, as it's being articulated, this is straightforward. Verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. You have to skip down to verse 6 for that. Well, kind of, in a way, in a very distant way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, the second half of verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Hmm. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. Which is <clears throat> pretty close to verse 11 and 12 in Matthew. <coughs> Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Pretty much parallel there. But notice it's there in Matthew, it's the you bit. It's it's gone to you again. Matthew kind of stopped being general there. Whereas it continues very much personal. Back at verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now. Where you will be filled and and while you might come up with some you know theological uh, metaphorical type references for that um, it, it also is a literal meaning if you're hungry you're gonna get to eat and the same is true for the next blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh mm. Hmm. What do y'all think of this from Luke? I, I had never thought about different groups getting different rewards. Mm -hmm. You know, because two groups get the kingdom of heaven. 
But it, if I'm sad, all I get is happiness. <laughs> Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. I think I'd rather get the kingdom. Yeah. That would make me happy. <laughs> That's the idea. And then notice this this statement about when you people hate you and exclude you and revile you. Notice the difference between Matthew and Luke on this. Although they are highly parallel, certain words are missing. Blessed are, are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. As opposed to, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Hmm. Exclude? Hmm. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For surely your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice and be gladful, for your reward is great in heaven. That's almost identical in terms of parallelism. For surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Yeah. Highly parallel, but with some interesting adjustments. Luke's use of that word exclude or leave you out. Uh, that's interesting. Those who are marginalized and pushed to the side and not included. Blessed are they too. Hmm. Having done that, now we see some interesting things. We see the woes. And there really aren't there really aren't any parallels in Matthew for these. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Doesn't define what rich is. Doesn't say, well, oh, anybody who makes one dollar more than me, yeah, that's rich, all right? Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't say that, just simply says rich. For you have received your consolation. If you ask Americans what rich is, literally it is someone who makes more than them. Doesn't matter what you make. If they make more than you, they are rich. It is a relative statement. Doesn't, uh, doesn't do that. It simply assumes we know what rich is. Blessed, but woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. You've already gotten it. Hmm. Woe to you who are full now. For you will be hungry. Think about it. You stuff yourself on Thanksgiving with wonderful food. So tight you're about to pop. Then you waddle over to the couch, lay down to watch the cowboy game. You think you'll never eat another bite ever again. You swear you will never eat another a bite again. And yet the next day you will be hungry. Next day? Well, <laughs> that Half night. Leftover time. Leftover time. Sandwich. Extra pie. But you're not really hungry. You're just greedy. 
But wait a day or two and you will be hungry again. Literally hungry again. But, you know, it's so definite it doesn't take in that the rich were probably poor before they were rich. Somebody was. And they were probably doesn't take before they were well fed. And it doesn't take any of that into account. It's, it, it, in fact, it places it in the present tense, even verbally. Woe to you who are rich. Right now. Okay. It's kind of like, you, 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 it doesn't say it, but if you go back and look at verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now. Verse 25, woe to you who are full now. If you are full now, guess what? It ain't going to last. For you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now. For you will mourn and weep. You know, that second half of verse 25 paralleled with the second half of verse 21, I often think about that when I'm in extraordinarily difficult times. Death of a love. When my dad died... I thought I'd never laugh again. And yet it probably was pretty quickly, within a few days, that I did. I didn't hurt any less, not that point in time, but I still found something to laugh about. And there's no way that you could be so happy that there's not something that might cause you to mourn that's reality. I know people who will have a mountaintop spiritual experience. Okay, they are the closest to God they've ever been. I, I, on walks to Emmaus, I see it again and again and again. They have these fabulous mountaintop experiences. They know the immediate real presence of God. It's wonderful. They are laughing and rejoicing. They are in heaven. They don't think it's ever going to end. And then when it does, they ask what happened. Why is it now over with? Why am I, I mean, I had that mountaintop. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love me anymore. No, not at all. Jesus actually addressed this. doesn't mean that you're a bad person if you're laughing now, by the way. Uh, by the way, value judgments here, we think they exist because of that reference to rich or poor. No. These really aren't necessarily value judgments being placed on either side. It's the simple fact of reality. If, um, if you're rich, you've received your consolation. You've got it. You don't need the kingdom of God. You've already got it, in a sense, or your version of it. And if, and if you are hungry now, you're not going to be hungry forever. And if you're full now, you're going to be hungry again. And if you're rejoicing now, there will come a time when you will mourn and weep. It happens. And the value judgments that we seem to be wanting to place on these passages here, it's dependent upon the word for rich and the woe statement. But that's really not a value judgment either. It's more of a cry than saying, oh, you poor things. 
you, you could you could possibly translate that. <clears throat> but oh, to you who are rich, you've received your consolation. Oh, to you who are full now, you will be hungry. Oh, oh, to you who are laughing now, you will mourn and weep. I've heard these passages preached in really condemning ways to the rich and the happy and the full. <laughs> and the person who's doing it usually is uh, wearing a three-piece suit and mm -hmm. overweight and, have, and having a good time. <sighs> Woe to you, oh, to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the pro false prophets. That right there is really scary for most preachers. Because we want people to speak well of us. We really do. And that's a warning. <clears throat> you know, they, 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 the ancestors really lauded the false prophets. And those false prophets. False prophets were those who said pleasing things to the people so the people would love them and accept them and give them money and, you know, good stuff. You tell the people what they want to hear. Being, being a prophet is not easy. It usually means saying things that will get telephone calls to the district superintendent. It usually means saying things that will get complaints filed with the staff parish committee. It usually means saying things that will kind of hurt a little bit, hopefully. A pastor who has never gotten in trouble with his staff parish or her district superintendent for the things preached isn't doing their job. Those are the ones that get the promotions. Yeah. You're not kidding. That's sad. You're not kidding, but that's the way. Life, that's that's the reality. Because because of you know the process of the false prophet syndrome, you say things that will stroke the people and make them feel good about themselves, so that things will go nice and smooth and copacetic. I've had district superintendents tell me, not just me personally, but a group of us together, you know, you, you, your job is to please the people so they'll pay their apportionments. <laughs> that's not my job. I'm sorry, my job is to preach Jesus. Christianity's <laughs> My job is to preach Jesus, and sometimes that means saying things that, frankly, I don't want to say. I don't want to say it. I don't want to give away the fact that, like I did on Sunday, that, that the best tool that any pastor has is the ability to twist the scripture to make it mean what he or she wants it to mean. We're really good at that. I'm really good at that. I know I am. It's wrong. It's the second temptation. Just as bad as the first, just as bad as the third. Half the time when I have to preach about those kinds of things, I'm preaching it myself. Some of the worst emails I get are from other pastors who let me have it for something I said or didn't say because they disagreed with it or thought I was giving away too much. In a sense, yeah. In a sense. Too much grace. How dare you give someone grace? Well, who are you to say? That's Jesus' job, isn't it? Who are you to forgive? That's well, Jesus' job. 
to make those determinations. My job is to let it go, to release it. The sins of any you retain are retained, and the sins of any that you release are released. And Jesus made it very clear, you don't stop releasing. Sorry. But I say to you, verse 27, but I say to you that listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. You know, of that sequence, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Notice that. Bless those who curse you. Well, yeah, I, I, I've been known to say things for those who curse, who curse me. Not necessarily they're, they're not necessarily blessings. Uh, <laughs> they might be other things. Pray for those who abuse you. Really? That's what Jesus did when they crucified him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Okay, so here we have love your enemies. Well, that's not easy. I don't want to love them. I want to get away from them. Do good to those who hate you. Huh? Bless those who curse you. Huh? Huh? Pray for those who abuse you. Huh? 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 And yet that's what he says. And it's one of the reasons why some of those 21 Seer, uh, Egyptian Christians who were murdered on the beach... They, in the end, they, as they were being killed, if you watch the video and listen to the translator, they would cry out to Jesus just as they would start to chop their head off. But every, every once in a while, some of them would say, start the, start the beginning of Lord, forgive them. Wow. I'm not sure I'm there. But that's what Jesus says. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, <clears throat> if anyone strikes you on the cheek, when I was little, I thought the cheek was that down here. <laughs> when anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt. Wow. Let's finish the paragraph. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. That's what it's coming up to. Verse 31 is what all those previous verses are coming up to in this paragraph. Do to others as you would have them do to you. What's that called, by the way? The golden rule. The golden rule. Not he who has the gold rules, which is how it's normally thought of. And and do to others as you would have them do to you. Uh, there's a contrapositive to that. Don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which actually works a little better. <laughs> but yeah, this is this is the golden rule. And if you're doing these things, the preceding verses work. They work. He's not done. He keeps on going. We don't have much time to keep going, but I, I would like to get the next paragraph done. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? 
Well, yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. That's kind of strange. He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Well, if you're doing those things, you're not ungrateful and you're not wicked. So if he's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, how much more is he going to be to you? Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. If only we all could live our lives that way. We would live in a completely different world. If everybody lived their lives this way. But we don't. So we have to struggle against reality. Those who hate us and persecute us and exclude us those who seek to take advantage of us and take from us what we have and strike us on the cheek and hate us and curse us and abuse us. We have to respond to them in ways that are commensurate with the principle, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's not easy. There are times when I wish that, you know, I wish it were easier than this. And I can see why there would be a temptation to want to take these passages and soften them to make them easier to pal be palatable to. But they state a very high goal. This is what sanctification and perfection look like when they're being lived. Not the law, not the Ten Commandments, this. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas, and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2015 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 1709 Highway 24, Commerce, Texas, 75428. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.